0: Hello, listener, and welcome to Straight Shot Health Talk. This is the podcast that provides honest and straightforward information about health, wellness, and how to survive our crazy healthcare system. This is for people who want to focus on getting well instead of just treating symptoms. Sound like you? Then let's get started. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin. And today we're going to be talking about the care you get. Um, And really what we're going to be talking about is, is the types of care available from the hospital and from your doctor and from clinics and even from the drugstore. All right? And people go, well, what does that mean? I thought we went to the hospital or we went to our doctor or we went to the drugstore when we were sick. And in general, that's true. We go there when we have a problem. But the difference is is what's the care that you receive? And what we're going to be talking about is three particular terminologies that everyone should know about. And this is these three terms are effective care, preference-sensitive care, and supply-sensitive care. Okay? Uh, these are three really important issues because they have a lot to do with how we're told what we need to take we the treatments that were offered in a lot of cases whether or not we have all the information or how much information that we need or whether we should even be trying to get more information okay there's some cases when you don't need a whole lot of information and if you waste a lot of time trying to get um, you know make, make too many decisions and not let doctors do their jobs bad outcomes will ensue now granted those are not always the case and what we instead see is more often when you people are told that they need something or they are recommended a procedure, drug, operation, whatever the course may, case may be. And that may not be the case because there's some other factors behind that offering that a lot of us don't know about. So let's dive into what effective versus preference-sensitive versus supply-sensitive care actually is. All right. Now, the way to kind of think about this in a simple terminology is if you – we're walking down the street, and a, a piece of glass fell out of a window and sliced into your neck, and you have blood spurting everywhere. All right, you have blood spurting everywhere from this bleeding neck. From from this bleeding neck. Sorry about that. What you n- need then is to have that blood controlled, basically sewn up. You need something that is going to make sure that you are not hemorrhaging and you're not going to die. Okay. Uh, And we're going to compare that to, say, you have an aching back, you have chronic back pain. It's kind of been there for a while or it comes and goes, but it's been there for years. And we're going to compare both of those then to simply something that doesn't have anything to do with you actually at all. It has to do with the fact maybe there's a lot of hospitals in the area and maybe some of them have too many empty rooms or maybe someone has too many empty operating rooms that aren't being used. And that's the context we're going to use for this. All right. Because what effective care is, it refers to services that have a value. And there really isn't a significant trade off with that. And basically, with the bleeding neck example, that, in that situation, you need effective care. You need to have that, that bleeding stopped, and then you need to have the blood vessels that are involved uh, controlled. Basically, either sewn back together again or sewn shut so that they're no longer bleeding. All right, we know that if you don't have that done, you're going to die because you will have no blood in your body. All right, so effective services then again have a proven value, and there is no significant trade-off. All right, basically, if you don't have it, you're kind of hurting yourself. Now, these are things that have had strong evidence. Uh, either research, lots of research studies, et-, et cetera, that have proven benefit with these, okay? Now, you would think that if there was a proven benefit with a particular drug or procedure, et cetera, that they would be widely used, and that's not necessarily always the case. Sometimes we don't take medication uh, despite knowing is what we need. Um, sometimes we put off having uh, some sort of therapy done because maybe we are convinced that there's something else out there, um, that happens sometimes with some cancer therapies, and and, and cancer is going to bridge this. There are some cancer therapies that are more effective than others, in which we would know that if you're not going to have it, that's going to hurt you. Uh, and a lot of this, though, when you look at effective care, comes down to acute conditions often. So if you have a life-threatening infection and it's caused by a bacteria, in that situation, effective care would be an antibiotic, a drug that is going to Either fight off that, that uh, bacteria, or it's going to keep it from growing more, so that your body's immune system can actually then eliminate the bacteria. It's really important to to uh, you know have that antibiotic because you're slowing down that rate of infection. In some cases, you're killing the bacteria, but not generally. Most of the time, you're just slowing its growth, and allowing your body to recover so that it can fight back and 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 destroy it. Okay, so antibiotics in certain situations would be effective care. Uh, Trauma situations, sort of like our bleeding neck example, when there's significant loss uh, loss of life or limb that will be happening if there is not therapy addressed to it. If you are having an acute heart attack, meaning you are having active chest pain, you have acute blockages, and they see it, you know, the EKG changes, and they go in the cath lab and see the big blocker. In that situation, you want to have that block in your heart removed, okay, effective care. All right. Well, what about preference-sensitive care? So preference-sensitive care what we talked about is, is using the aching back example. And what preference-sensitive care means that there are certain treatments for that condition, which may work, but there are trade-offs between using them and not, meaning you may have a risk of death associated with it, you may have a risk of some horrible thing happening, small or not small, uh, you may be having to take a pill for the rest of your life that may have a uh, may control the condition somewhat, but may have some significant side, side effects, like maybe it makes you sick to your stomach or you're older and you're having you know difficulties with sexual problems. A lot of medications have problems with uh, sexual dysfunction, et cetera. But anyway, it, it means this big preference sensitive care means that there is an option for you. All right. It also means that generally the science isn't too good. So we don't have a firm, clear-cut answer on when you should use these. It really becomes a matter of preference. There are some people that don't want to take medications. They don't like the side effects, et cetera, for some conditions. And there are other people that would happily take those medications, that that reassurance that somehow taking that medication is, is okay, even given the risks associated with that drug or the side effects it entails. Now, we often see this with surgery, and a big one is back surgery, all right? Back surgery, we do not have great indications for surgery for chronic back pain, all right? There are situations when surgery is absolutely warranted, in which case we would move it up into the effective care realm, you know, things like if you fell and you had massive broken bones and your spine was unstable and there was risk that you were going to cause permanent neurologic injury, you need to have that basically strengthened so that that spine doesn't move anymore you know you need the rods etc to put in there Um, other surgeries which are also in that boat would be things like uh, you know removing a cancerous organ that is just riddled with cancer and, and getting that out okay but for chronic back pain the state of science for, with surgery is extraordinarily poor. In fact, we do not have great studies or I would say we don't even have good stratification strategies on, on, on how to <laughs> recommend people to surgery. In fact, if you look at chronic back pain and surgery for chronic back pain, the risk factors for poor outcomes, which there are many, have nothing to do with MRIs or imaging movement or anything, things like that. They have more to do with what people feel about their pain. Um, a lot of the the expectations they have about pain, the beliefs that they have about the cause of their pain and such, such. They really have nothing to do with the imaging. Like we always think that getting these MRIs and such would help improve that, but they don't. And while some people, again, may want to take that chance with having a back operation done, there's some significant tra- trade-offs with it. There's some big risks of having complications after the operation is done for back surgery in um, the more complex surgeries, of which for back surgery, those are actually <laughs> escalating uh, more rapidly than the, the simple surgeries, you know, particularly these things for adults, what they call adult spinal deformities, um, some huge operations. I was at a conference uh, about a month ago, just saw some of the MRIs that were just absolutely astounding. And when... Other surgeons would look at these images before those surgeries were done. They were saying this probably wasn't indicated, or this didn't need to have surgery done. All right. So, preference-sensitive care means that there are treatments out there which are legitimate. Whatever this sort basically mean is they are not. Um, there are some people that would have them. There are some people. One. There's a mixed. Kind of review of what the evidence says. Some studies may say they support them, some studies may not, but there's basically an uncertainty involved with them. All right. Now, this is where a lot of our healthcare is. We're in this preference-sensitive care. All right. Again, we talk about low back pain and disc surgery effusion. Um, there's studies with knee arthritis or knee pain in certain situations. Uh, operations. some of those knee arthroscopies when they stick a camera and just sort of look around in there, um, don't have a lot of good evidence to support that. Um, some joint replacements, again, um, may have benefit, may not. Uh, and some of this also is an individual age, health kind of thing as well. So, like, you know, if you look at some of the the joint replacements, if you are walking every day, moving every day, vibrant seven-year-old, and your knee is starting to give out and is has no cartilage and the bones rubbing on each other. In those situations, it makes make, make sense. But you have to realize that when you have those surgeries and you're put under anesthesia, there are definitely some large risk factors involved with that as well. You can have things such as what's called post-operative cognitive dysfunction, um, which is something we're not really clear what causes that, but it's known in the anesthesia literature where people wake up from anesthesia and they don't seem to be quite the same or they lose some memory, have some memory issues. And those can persist for years. Some of them may recover, but a lot of them don't. And if you are older, say you are 85-year-old, you know, those risks obviously will increase. The risks of the surgeries increase just because of age and um What shape you're in. So in those particular people, if you're 85, say, and you're in your family, nobody has lived past 85 or 86 or whatever the case may be in that time frame, and you're sick and you have a lot of other problems, like say you have emphysema in your lungs and maybe you need oxygen or maybe you have heart problems as well. In that situation, having a joint replaced may not make sense. The risk of the surgery itself and the expected outcome that you're going to achieve with that operation may not provide you with a great benefit for your overall life. It may not provide you um, may not increase your function the way that it would. it may not provide you strong benefits in the way of pain and there is as I said significant risk with that where instead of living you know the next two years, five years, whatever, doing your own thing and, and living your life the way that you want to, you can undergo these operations and then end up either having a stroke, or you can have, what I said, you know, that post cognitive dysfunction. You can basically decrease the quality of your life by pursuing some of these care. All right, so preference-sensitive care, much more uncertainty involved, and this is where you have to do your homework. And what that means is, in this world that we live in, you have to educate yourself, you have to go through the data, you have to talk to the doctors. Most importantly, for these particular... Care, care modalities, you don't need to rush. Okay, these are preference-sensitive care modalities. These are not um, effective care. You do not have a bleeding neck in this moment in time. You There's no impending r- risk of life or death within the next 24 hours. Now, in some situations, you may have to make a decision sooner than later. There are some cancer therapies such as um, mastectomies and lumpectomies. Uh, that are a little bit more preference sensitive when they're looking at whether you should have a full mastectomy or not. You would obviously not want to delay having some sort of cancer-related surgery for months and months and months on end. But, often, but in some cases, you do have days, weeks, maybe a month to make those decisions. All right. So preference sensitive care, When things aren't uncertain, if you're talking to a doctor and they start going, well, you could do this or you can't, you may not do this or this, the risks and benefits. That's what we're talking about with preference-sensitive care. There's a lot more homework that you need to do to fully inform yourself. Now, the reason that is of particular importance is because if you delegate your decision making, meaning if you just say do whatever you want, doc you are going to be all over the board because there are some doctors that are extraordinarily aggressive with surgery, with the procedures that they do, etc. And in that context, they may not be doing what is right for you at all. Again, if you are, a am going to say a 95-year-old person because the 80s really isn't that old anymore, 95-year-old person sick, having a lot of difficulty. Oh, I got a great example of this. So you're so You're a 90-something-year-old male healthy farmer, and then they find that you are getting a little tired when you're walking around and they, you get the, the full workup for some reason. And they find out that one of your heart valves is uh, getting older and it's getting sort of squeezed. So some heart valves over time um, can start developing, uh, they can get getting stiff and they don't work as well. And that can cause problems with blood flow out of the heart. Now here's the thing. When you're operating on the heart, and particularly those heart valves, that is a big problem big operation with significant risks of both death and significant risks of bad outcomes, stroke and organ failure. Some people don't ever get out of the hospital. And if you're a 90 plus year old male, the likelihood of bad things happening to you, even if you're a healthy farmer, are more. And if we start looking at what your expected, you know, your expected time frame of life, how long you're going to live because As we all know, we are going to die despite the fact that we don't ever want to talk about it or even recognize it. We will die. 90, 95-year-old male may only have, you know, he can have two years. I mean, he could have a day, but he could have five years, 10 years, 15 years, sure. But it's less likely that he's going to have the 15 or 20 years of, say, a 40-year-old and more closer to maybe the three to five-year expected time frame uh, in that duration. And the reason that becomes important, because when you look at things like these heart valves that start getting kind of squeezed and tight. Once people start having symptoms, symptoms meaning they get some swelling in their legs, they can't walk as far, they're getting tired more easily, they start getting fluid buildup and things like that. In those situations, we know that generally within two years, people will die. All right? And so I could present that to that guy and say, well, you know, if you don't have this operated on, you're going to die within two years. Now, the other fact of the matter is, even if you never had that heart problem to begin with, he has a higher probability of dying in the next two years than somebody else. All right. All right. But if we just say, you know, you're going to die in the next two years, then for that particular patient, it may be, well, that's a no-brainer. I want to live. I'm pretty healthy. I'm a healthy farmer or whatever. I should have the surgery done. But what was neglected to say is, yes, you may die in the next two years, but the risk of having significant complications with this particular surgery, which is highly invasive, you have to stop your heart, you have no blood flow going to your head, et cetera, doing all this stuff, you're on bypass, uh, which is highly traumatic to your body, you may have 20, 30, 40, whatever percent chance of significant harm from the surgery itself. And not telling people that up front, in selling the fact that when you have that type of surgery, particularly heart related surgery, that's beyond what I talked about with postoperative cognitive dysfunction. Uh, the body does not like being put on bypass, and there are some significant brain issues afterward where you don't think clearly. They actually call it pump head, the name for it. Um, but as the older you get, it becomes harder to recover from that. So now you're no longer thinking clearly, maybe you have accelerated dementia. You have more prob- memory problems, which you can't generate any memories, which then also influences your quality of your life. So you, if they're, they're never told to the patient up front, though, and he's just told, you know, if you don't have the surgery, uh, there's a high prob- probability you're going to die in the next two years. What do you think you're, the, sur- the, the decision that you're going to make is? It almost becomes a no-brainer. Well, I don't want to die in the next two years. I'm going to have the surgery done. So you have to always think of the context of what your goal is, what the downsides are, and you need to make sure you have a clear and informed um, opinion or decision upon that, meaning you have to do your own research on this. Yeah, there are some doctors will go through all of them, um, and there's some doctors that won't, for and not necessarily for reasons that they're trying to be bad or not, that some people will do it just because they don't want to burden you with that kind of information, whatever. Yeah, but as I said, there's also this high rate where there's some people are very, very aggressive doing this and there's some that are not. So there's high variability and it really becomes incumbent on you to fully explore your options and then find some trusted people that you that you can talk to. That's a little bit harder. Getting second opinions from other physicians, etc. I always like the question of what would if if this was your your family member, what would you recommend for them um, it seems to like get a little bit better response out of doctors at times uh, but that's that's what that that preference sensitive care means it really means homework for you that there may be some options they may not be good options uh, and you have to explore explore whether the downsides of whatever those options are are ones that you're going to live with you know or whether there are other options available that may not rely on surgery injections or medications all right now, what is the last one? So we talked about effective care. That is the bleeding neck stuff, Your neck's bleeding open. If you do not have it, bad things are going to occur. We talked about preference-sensitive care, which is you know, the aching back where well, there may be some th- treatments. The evidence is a little bit less conclusive on that. Um, there can be some significant downsides. You really have to be educated and uh, understand what it is that that people want to do with you and what that end goal that you want for yourself is, okay? And have some some realistic expectations there. Now, the last one is supply-sensitive care, which if you go back to the the first terminology, I said bleeding neck versus aching back versus we have an empty operating room. And supply-sensitive care uh, is really sort of malignant. Now, what supply-sensitive care refers to is when the supply of these resources has a major influence on whether they're performed or not. And basically that means if you have a lot of hospitals in the area and there's a lot of empty beds, empty beds do not make money. Let's get some patients in there. All right. This sounds a little bit of callous, but unfortunately it's true. There are areas where there are lots of hospital beds compared to the number of people in those areas. And because of this, or you can't say because of this, and and, uh, coincidentally, people who live in these regions tend to get hospitalized more often than people who don't live in areas where there's lots of hospital beds the other problem is is they don't seem to do any better so you may think well what's the harm obviously all these hospital beds ICU beds more operating rooms more chance of care care we're not rationing anything like you know whatever those countries that ration care so obviously we get whatever we want when we we want it and that must be better but that's not true because if you're getting therapy that is not necessarily good for you or is outside influences, oftentimes even physicians may not even understand they're being biased by these outside influences, um, then you're hurting yourself. And it, what some studies have shown is that, you know, people are not living longer in these areas. Um, they are not more satisfied with their care. They face more risks of having medical errors, adverse events, acquiring, you know, hospital related or hospital related infections and in which those are often the, the worst bacteria around or the ones living in the hospitals. Um, more and more physicians. So if you're in an area where there's a lot of specialists involved and you're bounced from your primary care doc to 16 different other specialists, each kind of doing thing with, with a one organ system, um, it becomes less clear who's responsible. There's more miscommunication. There's more possible mistakes made. Uh, you may have over aggressive care because as specialists we tend to have little little blinders on and only stare at one little area and don't look at the big picture uh, you have great greater use of uh, diagnostic tests such as MRIs, ct scans x rays lab uh, lab tests all of which can find abnormalities uh, which may have absolutely nothing to do with you or have are causing you any problems at all it's like the more we search for flaws now, if you, take a, uh, if you want to look at your wall and you take a step back, your wall looks fine. It's holding up the roof. It's keeping out the, the harsh environment, and you're doing okay. But if we start standing closer and closer to it, we're looking at it, say, you're a wall specialist. And then we get up right next to that wall, and we pull out a, ma- a magnifying glass. We're going to start finding cracks, and then we may say, "Well, you need these cracks fixed. Let's rip out this wall." Da-da-da-da-da. And there, overall, there's nothing wrong with the wall. It may have a crack in it, but it's still holding up the ceiling and it's keeping out the snow. What else do you want? So, anyway, supply-sensitive care refers to having all this available care, and then the question is no longer what's good for you; it's where are the patients that cons- that can actually be treated with all this excess supply of care now i would like to say that this is rare but unfortunately it isn't and as i also like to I, I also said you know physicians at times say often we don't realize what goes into the way that we make decisions this is actually true for most people but there are all sorts of things that happen in our subconscious mind that influence the way we make decisions. These are things known as like the priming effect, um, the way we have been anchored to a particular thought process, uh, the way we frame the particular outcomes. Um, there's a really excellent book about all this stuff, very dense, but I think everybody should read it if you really are interested in the way that we actually think. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, who is a, a Nobel Prize-winning Um, He won the Nobel Prize in economics, but he's a a psychologist. But all this stuff happens. And so if you are in an environment, say you're a physician and you are paid due to your productivity, the number of patients you see, see, the number of procedures you do, you get these things called relative value units, and that's how you are getting paid. That is not uncommon at all. A lot of medical groups do it. Now, say you have lower RVUs because you simply aren't seeing enough patients or there aren't enough patients or you don't see enough people that have the problems. In that situation, despite you thinking otherwise, there is a greater chance that knowing knowing that, that potential gain that you have will influence you to make the decision for someone who may be on the fence. Maybe they don't need to have the colonoscopy. Maybe they don't need to have an angiogram, etc., but you will be more likely to recommend it to them, right? To fill that need, that supply chain. Or if you're living in a situa- in a place with all these hospital beds, and say you were possibly admitting, uh, you know, there's a your patient goes into the emergency room, you know, when there's when there's lots of empty beds, there's no one discouraging you to not admit the patient. And the same thing goes with ICU beds. Lots of empty ICU beds. Hey, more of an opportunity to have somebody in the ICU, right? And Again, this is I'm not trying to make it sound like it's dirty. This is just a fact of life and it has something to do with a lot of the reasons that, you know, people we just don't understand how we make decisions and there's these unconscious, these subconscious biases that get involved with these things. So what does that mean for you? Well, it does mean if you live in an area with lots of hospitals or lots of medical specialists, you got again, you have to educate yourself and say is this something that is that I absolutely positively need? Now, in the best situation, you have a trusted primary care provider. And I know that is becoming more rare and more rare as our fragmented health system is is running those poor people ragged because in most situations, they don't have a chance to spend time with you. You know, they're seeing you for 5 to 10 minutes, maybe a little bit longer. And there's a lot, you know, honestly, what happens with that is then people then get referred to more and more specialists. Again, big problem with that. But what I would say is anytime you're recommended for something, Get the name of the person, you know, first you have to know what they're treating. What is the disease name that they're treating you for? Okay, you want a name, preferable to a syndrome. Then you want to know what it is that they're recommending. And then it's time to do your research. Again, what what is the, you know, <laughs> you have to find this. <laughs> I'm having some difficulty with this too because normally I would say you you go to, you know the Mayo Clinic website or the Cleveland Clinic website or uh, some of these other large um, ivory tower type academic Johns Hopkins Harvard etc which have large websites with some information on there uh, unfortunately those are not always correct either and particularly as I said with uh, with back pain and there's a lot of problems with back pain and lots not great information available on the internet but get as much information as you can in that situation and then you also may want to Look at what is happening in your area. So Medicare has got some interesting web websites, or CMS is now called, where you can actually look at um, you can look up physicians and actually see what they're getting paid. You can see the you know where they are in that that uh, that realm. Are they in the 96 percentile of doing operations uh, versus the 50th percentile? Um, if you look at people who are doing elective type surgeries, I think that's a, a little bit more. Uh, valid point because if there's a high rate, that either means that they have a huge referral area and they're getting tons of referrals or they're simply just operating too much. Um, And when you look at back pain in particular, that is much more likely to be cases. They're just operating too much. So for supply sensitive though, again, you have some time here. Look at your options. What are you being diagnosed with? What is the treatment being recommended? Now, Obviously, if you're in the emergency room, it becomes much more difficult to do if you're going with chest pain or not. But, again, what would you ask your physicians? You can, you, if you ask physicians, what would you do for your family member? And this could also go for, would you, re, you know, who would you refer your family member to if it's a specialist that maybe your primary care doc wants to send you to? What would you do for your family member if um, they had this condition? Would you recommend that they have this procedure? Why, why not, et cetera? You have some time to get some information on here. Now, supply sensitive care is a little bit more difficult to sort of parcel out than preference sensitive care. But if you approach it in a similar way, where you get information, you get some second opinions, uh, you become you know, you gotta become knowledgeable in what is being asked of you. Then and <laughs> and have some trusted doctors as well. Uh, you're less likely to, to, to come to harm in this. So, overall, takeaways. There's effective care, there's bleeding neck, active heart attack, you're going to die without it. That's the easy stuff. Actually, our healthcare system is very good at doing that. We're geared towards doing things. And for effective care, you generally have to do things, like car accidents, strokes, etc. cetera. Then we have preference-sensitive care, uh, which is there are or maybe some treatments or legitimate treatments for it, um, but there are some risks associated with it. And there'd be more than one option for treating whatever condition it is. That one requires a lot more education. That means second opinions. You don't want to be rushed. Yes, there may be some time, um, time frames you have to be looking at, uh, but you certainly have to don't have to make those decisions for most preference sensitive care in 24, 48, even a week or two weeks for most of those. And then the last one, the nefarious supply sensitive care, which is beware if you live in an area with lots of hospitals, lots of docks, lots of operating rooms. All right, folks. Well, I am going to end with this one. Know your options. Don't be pushed in the corner. And until next time, stay well.